The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, one man stands between the forces of the supernatural and the rest of us, and the science behind a new Bain anthology. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, we bring you Patrick Childs in conversation with Griffin Barber about Childs' second entry in his eccentric orbit series, Escape Orbit a rousing science fiction tale set at the edge of our solar system and the edge of the unknown. But first, the news. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story and nonfiction essay. First up, we have The Last Temptation of the Outsider by Simon R. Green. Jack Damon is known as the outsider. It's his job to make sure the supernatural world doesn't encroach on our own mundane reality. In his role, he has faced down dragons, ogres, and worse. But when he's called to an old abbey, he will come face to face with his greatest challenge yet. And this month's free nonfiction essay, A Small Red Star, Ross 248, by Les Johnson and Ken Roy. Though you might not realize it, when you look up at the night sky, most stars are much smaller than our sun and not visible to the naked eye. They are red dwarfs. Not even one can be seen from Earth without the aid of a telescope. In their new collection of fiction and science essays, Les Johnson and Kinroy explore what it would take to colonize one such red dwarf, Ross 248. In this month's nonfiction essay, they chronicle the science behind the stories. That's The Last Temptation of the Outsider by Simon R. Green and A Small Red Star, Ross 248 by Les Johnson and Ken Roy. And that's it for the news. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Pain Free Radio Hour. Patrick Childs has authored a number of books and written numerous nonfiction articles for aviation periodicals and journals. He now consults in aviation and has more time to focus on his career as an author. Escape Orbit, the hard SF novel we're here to talk about today, is the exciting sequel to the amazing Frozen Orbit, also available from Bain Books. Hello and welcome, Patrick. Hi, thank you for having me here. So, hardest question first, what's the coolest aspect of Escape Orbit for you? Uh, I think the coolest thing is the cover, but I know you're interested in the coolest part of the story. And I would say, without trying to give too much away, uh, wormholes, particularly wormholes through space that might be near our own solar system. So did you stumble on that aspect? Did you work your way toward it? Or did the characters or your research uh, dictate it was going to happen? You know, it was, it was central to the story. Um, I had to spend a lot of time visualizing it and, and how to describe it. Uh, yeah, it, it's not something that the characters dictated. It's kind of kind of happens to them. 
I guess again, not not want to give, uh, not give, not want to give too much away, um, because one of the aspects of the story, where it picks up where Frozen Orbit left off, uh, where one of my main characters, astronaut named Jack Templeton, has taken their old spacecraft, called the Magellan, out to the edge of the solar system. Um, there were things that happened at the end of escape orbit that made that necessary. Um, basically used it as a slingshot to get an injured crewmate back to Earth in time for uh, the kind of medical care that she needed. But he was going back out. Um, it was going to leave him going back out to the, again, to the edge of the solar system. And with that, he had a goal in mind. Um, he wanted to find the theorized planet nine which I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. I imagine a lot of Bane readers are familiar with it. For those yeah. who aren't, out uh, of fairness to them, I need to give a little background. Right. Um, it is a theory that there is a pretty large, at least Neptune-sized planet way out at the edge of the solar system. And what has led astronomers to think that is they've seen that how the orbits of certain Pluto-type Kuiper belt objects, dwarf planets, have been their orbits have been perturbed or bent in a certain direction and they're all kind of heading in the same direction and so when they did i guess a regression analysis might be the right way to think about it but when they when they modeled how those orbits might have been um, distorted like that over time and i'm talking billions of years time scale they realized well there had to be another body out there doing it and for that to happen, it had to be of a certain mass and a certain orbital period. So they have a, what they think is a really good idea of its orbital period, you know, meaning how long it takes to get around the sun, which dictates how far away it is. It's like a 10,000 year period. It's really far out there. And they think they have a pretty good idea of where it might be right now. Um, so that was enough for me to go off and running. And um, one of the... Uh, as I was researching this, um, you know, I wanted the story to be, um, you know, obviously adventurous. It'd have some twists and turns in it, but there's some alternate theories on what might be the source of that gravity. Okay, so you can say, you know, primordial black hole, right? Um, that would be cool, but I also didn't want it to kill them. <laughs> So, so I started thinking wormhole, you know, now you can make some obvious comparisons to interstellar. That was not on my mind when I wrote this. Um, I've been joking and I said at the Bain road show, think interstellar, but without all the crying. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I started uh, researching wormholes. Uh, Les Johnson was able to point me to a professor at Baylor who is pretty deep into this stuff. And he was kind enough to explain some things to me in a way I hope I understood <laughs> and uh, shared a paper with me that he had, he had authored with his students about wormholes that could be traversed. Um, Cause it's, it, 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 their existence fits within the, the uh, understood science, but the problem is as soon as anything, they're very unstable, assuming they exist and anything that enters them, it causes it to collapse. So his, his investigations have been on what could create a stable wormhole that you could actually traverse. And, uh, and 
that gets into some really mind-bending stuff. It, it took a while to get my head around that enough to be able to craft a story around it. Neat. So uh, Escape Orbit has at its heart a pair of astronauts that are separated by a nearly unimaginable distance, yet remain close, Jack and Tracy. Uh, as returning characters from Frozen Orbit, was this book always planned, or did you discover another story they had to tell? Um, it wasn't. Now, when I wrote Frozen Orbit, I... I wrote it as a standalone. I intentionally left the ending a little open-ended. So um, if it was successful enough, we could turn it into a series. But it was my sister-in-law who pointed out to me that she wanted to know what happened to Jack at the end. And and then my wife piped up too. And she, you know, she didn't say anything, but she said, yeah, you, you should have done that. And I'm like, well, that's what sequels are for. But no, they were really the, kind of the ones that planted the seed um, that I really needed to, to think this through and, and, and come up with a, with a really good story that I, that I could uh, turn into another novel. It's funny that you say that uh, Eric uh, Flint was, you know, he had a lot of interactions with Jim Bain and uh, he used to tell me that Jim Bain said, you know, the easiest way not to get a sequel is to write for a sequel, <laughs> you know, make sure that each one of your novels is discreet and a story in and of itself. And, everything else will take care of itself. No. Well, it kind of did, um, yeah. you know, and uh, I, I don't want to say it's second nature, but that is, has been the way that I've been writing. You know, I, I want all the loose ends to be tied up. I want there to be a clear ending, but I want it to, to um, be open enough to be able to write more from it. And so everything I've written, um, this is the first that's strictly, um, you know, could be strictly thought of as a series, but they all happen in the same universe. There's right. a little bit of character crossover. And so they're kind of going on two separate tracks. Escape Orbit, Frozen Orbit, uh, what we call the Eccentric Orbits series is more of the big idea sci-fi track. Um, the other book I wrote for Bain that came out last year, Frontier, is more of the action adventure military sci-fi track, but it's still all near future think of it happening in say the next 20 year time frame. That's the kind of sci-fi I like to write. Very influenced by 80s Cold War techno thrillers. It's that same kind of style. I like building the, the geopolitical intrigue and the great power conflicts and the, the subterfuge and stuff like that into it. So uh, which character in Escape Orbit surprised you? Uh, Daisy. Uh, she is the she is artificial intelligence on the Magellan spacecraft that has been Jack's only companion for the last five or six years, keeping him sane and keeping him alive and helping keep the ship running. Um, th this was something that I explored in Frozen Orbit. Um, it, um, that they realized over time during their, during their long uh, trip out to Pluto that their onboard AI was had probably become sentient so they went there was a couple of scenes in the book where they went through the whole turing test with her and all that and um um came to the conclusion that they thought she was but you know she's out there in deep space she, she's not here on earth for other scientists or whoever to um come to that same conclusion so it's just kind of her and jack but her personality such that it is for a computer starts to develop and um you know she starts to have her own thoughts she starts to show 
you know, the ability to take initiative and take some pretty drastic steps and not in a bad guy, Hal 9000 kind of way, but, you know, I see her as the opposite of Hal. She's Hal with a conscience. To which, to which there are references. In, in oh, the yeah. yeah. You can't get away from it. Right. Because I don't, you know, I think we're all influenced by the people who came before us. Um, and, and so none of this was consciously copying anything, but because I also write near future, you know, I like to have a little fun with that. So I like to throw out the cultural references and, right. you know, the movie quips, because that's what real life people doing this stuff now. If you think astronauts don't make Star Trek jokes, yep. you know, you're fooling yourself. So, right. well, you know, I, I want to have some fun with that. So how did uh, Daisy come about? I'm sure it's probably from in the first book, but. Yeah, Daisy's still... in the first book. Uh, somebody that reviewed Frozen Orbit assumed that I named her Daisy because there's a scene in 2001, you know, where where Dave Bowman's taking Hal's brain apart and, and Hal regresses to, you know, his first day and starts singing that Daisy, Daisy song. And that wasn't it. That was completely accidental. Um, but I needed a good name, so I came up with a backronym, <laughs> sort of, and um, it, it stands for Distributed Artificial Intelligence Surveillance Environment. So she, she's there to keep an eye on the spacecraft for the astronauts. She's kind of like the onboard mission control, because, you know, as they get farther and farther and farther out, the time lags get to the point where mission control is... Um, they're kind of there for guidance, you know, right. they, they can't do anything in real time. So she's there to help them uh, troubleshoot and see things in real time that um, maybe they can't see for themselves. Um, so that's, that's where she came from. So in a similar vein, which character from escape orbit would you want to avoid like the plague and why? Oh, that's easy. Uh, the NASA administrator, her name's Jacqueline Cheever. And she's, uh, she's not a nice lady. She is very anti-human exploration. Um, her background, and she came up in frozen orbit too. She kind of politically maneuvered her way into the administrator's office. She had been uh, NASA's planetary protection officer um, before that. And so that's the office that makes sure that when we send probes to, you know, like Mars, that we don't do something stupid and contaminate it with with um you know earth um biology um and that vice versa we don't bring unknown you know extraplanetary biology back to earth well the first one is far more of a concern um and there's you know there's legitimate scientific need for that you know you can't know if we found life on Mars if we accidentally brought it with us and we just weren't really good about cleaning the thing before we launched it, right? It, yep. And it, it's not that simple. There's a whole bunch of protocol, but that's it. So, yeah, I, I like to use NASA as a foil. You know, I'm very pro um, commercial space flight. I think that's where the real innovation is, you know, going to come from. And uh, so... Again, it's easy to use them as a foil, and maybe it's not entirely fair, but it is fiction. Now, I have been told by people at NASA that there's a lot of the politics and the infighting that I actually get right, and I just did it kind of by assumption <laughs> right. uh, because it worked dramatically. But, yeah, so she wants to scuttle the whole thing. She doesn't want humans out there at all. She's working behind the scenes with the UN to craft this 
space exploration um, protocol that would essentially prohibit any further human presence on any uh, solar system bodies. Like if we haven't already been there, you can't go anymore. Right. And uh, and she doesn't want to see us going out to get Jack. She she looks at it as you know Jack knew what he was signing up for. It was a slow motion suicide mission, and he made his bed. He's going to have to sleep in it. So, which character would you want as an ally? Almost any of the others. <laughs> um, I would absolutely want Daisy. Uh, Tracy would be another one. Um, she's Jack's former crewmate. Um, they had kind of a touch and go relationship and she is faithful and fiercely loyal and will take whatever steps necessary to do the right thing by her people. So are any of the above based on real people? Not a one. Um, there's some personality traits. Uh, is one of the things that, that, I used when I first started writing was in my, my aviation, my previous aviation career. Um, I wasn't a pilot. I have a license, but I don't fly professionally, but I was in operations management, safety. So it's kind of the behind the scenes, almost mission control type management of say like an airline. Um, so I kind of extrapolated that environment in, into my fictional world, figured that's what it's going to look like at some point. So again, I knew the personality types and um, so there's bits and pieces. So maybe there's bits and pieces of people that I've come across over the years or people right. that I've read about in, in, in like space program history, but no, there's nobody I've modeled any of these people after. So uh, a little shifting of gears here. Most authors, uh, you mentioned it earlier, uh, find it harder to write near future stories than far future ones. Uh, it doesn't sound like this is the case for you, but is it or what is challenging about it what draws you to it so it, it is challenging in that well you don't have to do all the world building that you do with really far-flung sci-fi or fantasy um because you're using the world you live in now um you do have to be really careful about about predicting trends and You've got to be specific enough for it to feel real, but you don't want to be so specific that somebody can't pick up the book 10 years from now and the world's completely gone in a different direction and say, you know, this is, you know, it, because it does date it. And like, I don't build specific dates into it. It's all very general references to timelines for the same reasons. Right. Um, I want somebody to pick up this book in 2040 and, and still think, oh, this could be happening now or not far from now. Um, and not see a date of 2032 or whatever and say uh, it's past. Because uh, I think some people, that there's a little bit of a psychological barrier with that when you see a date from way back and it just kind of takes you out of the story. Right. So, um, but yeah, world building, the, the one I'm working on right now with Bain is a real departure for me. It is absolutely more far-flung kind of fun sci-fi there's space aliens involved and all this and so the world building is a lot more involved than i've been used to before i'm having fun doing it but it it, it you, you really have to think it through before you start getting too far down the road <laughs> so uh you talk about the time scale of transiting between planets and outer systems and the way astronauts will have to entertain themselves when not in hibernation uh you do it really well um 
though I felt as if there should be some more game consoles involved. Uh, did you model the transit times on any uh, current or past missions? Oh, no, because there's nothing nothing close. Um, I mean, the closest thing would be, say, the New Horizons mission out to Pluto, which was kind of what inspired Frozen Orbit in the first place. And I can get into that later if, if you'd like. But, um, no, I again, this just gets back to the research. Um, I started with uh, some what we call Delta V mission tables that were published on the Atomic Rockets website. I use that a lot for starting my research um, and finding finding good references. So I could use that to get a, a real general idea of how long these kind of trips would take based on the propulsion system that I was using, which again is not something I made up. None of the technology is stuff I've made up out of whole cloth. Um, it's all stuff that's not just been theorized, but um, tested to some degree. Um, so I, I want it to be feasible. And so from, from there, you know, I, once I understand the underlying technology, the kind of propulsion I'm going to be using, we're not really sure where Planet Nine is. They have some idea of how far away it is. So um, you can use that to come up with transit times. And again, just specific enough to give it some realism without being so detailed that if you're proven wrong, it takes you out. It takes readers right. out of the story. Right. <laughs> so uh, the ins and outs of the political scene within NASA and the wider spacefaring community of nations impacts the story in a bunch of ways. Very few of them positive. Uh, you mentioned earlier, do you believe the, our, our future in space will rely on private enterprise or public-private cooperatives? Um, private enterprise, as far as cooperatives go, I guess it depends on how you define cooperatives. I mean, it, there's no denying that all of the real innovation right now is coming from private industry. Now, there is some, you know, government support for that. Um it's not the same as NASA contracting Boeing and Lockheed to build a Saturn V, an Apollo spacecraft. Basically, we're, you're going to build our design, right? right. Um, and I know it wasn't quite that simple, but, you know, they spec it out. The contractors build it. Now, in this case, like the SpaceX case, that's not how this worked. Um, you know, people that don't follow it real closely may not realize that. You know, SpaceX invented it themselves. Um, they did most of the development on their own dime. Now, they couldn't have finished it without some NASA contracts, but that's fine. They got contracted to build it, fly it, and if you can do it, then, hey, we'll give you another contract to supply the space station. You know, and, and that's perfectly legitimate. It's like the military, you know, they, they don't do all of their, um, they don't move their troops around completely on their own. They hire it out to airlines when they need to, you know. It makes a lot more sense than keeping their own fleet of passenger 747s sitting around. Right. You know, um, you know, and I, and I like to see this be the same way because, you know, getting people and stuff to Earth orbit and back is well enough understood now that it really needs to be left up to private industry. I would go so far as saying out to the moon, cis lunar space. And I would really like to see NASA get back to its roots, which was research and development. Um, doing the kind of R&D that private industry maybe can't financially justify. You know, the return on investment isn't there. Um, and some things that it takes a government agency to do, like nuclear propulsion, that is the one thing, I, that is the one enabling technology I really want to see. 
you know, and let's face it, the materials you need are tightly controlled for really good reasons. And well, just just so, to, if nothing else, the the insurance fees that SpaceX pays to launch every time are pretty <laughs> monumental. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you throw some, you know, uh, radioactives in there or large amounts of radioactives in there, you're going to be looking at even more expensive. Uh, and that's because, yeah. you know, as far as my understanding of the law is, is that if it blows up over someone else's airspace, uh, then they're, they're paid out uh, to for the, both the recovery and for whatever damage is done to their environment. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, there, there are certain aspects of it that certainly need to be taken care of by, or at least facilitated by government institutions and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And things, so things like, like, you know, again, advanced propulsion, um, because it shouldn't take nine months to get a human crew to Mars. We've got the technology. I mean, we, we built nuclear thermal rockets back in the sixties and seventies. They just warehoused all of them. Um, and, you know, they've been starting it up again more slowly. Um, you know, I, I think there's some recognition with, you know, it's a lot of the stuff gets, gets nudged along by the military. You know, uh, the Space Force and DARPA, you know, recognize that if we're going to have space domain control, then that requires something with a lot of Delta V and flexibility. And that means nuclear thermal. Right. Um, that's the most immediate solution. So they're going down that road. Um, the other thing is, is uh, closed loop life support. Now, you know, with better propulsion, you can reduce um, travel times and it's, you know, life support becomes, their closed loop maybe becomes less critical, but really if we're going to go anywhere for any substantial amount of time, uh, that's, that's another uh, big hurdle. And I'd really like to see NASA's money going towards perfecting those technologies and making them available for the private sector to exploit, right. you know, rather than redoing Apollo, you know, as cool as the SLS rocket was, you know, once Starship and Super Heavy are flying, there's no business case for it. Right. Oh, cool. So Escape Orbit has not only believable technology, but some very cool applications of it. Uh, you explain a lot of these technologies and some of the physics behind it without bogging the story down. Uh, where'd this skill at explaining science and technology come from? Uh, well, it came from kind of a, a natural fascination that I have with this, um, because my background isn't in uh, isn't scientific or engineering um endeavors uh, my degree's in english so um now i did kind of backdoor my way into i like to say forrest gumped my way <laughs> into an engineering uh field uh, about 15 some years ago um and and that came through the aviation jobs i was in um because there there's you know inherently technical and there's a lot of things you have to learn and to get licensed and pick up along the way. And that enabled me to think more like an engineer um, or a scientist. And anyway, it, it did make it easier to do the research and, un and really start to understand the, the, the kind of things I was interested in. It helped a lot um, when I was, a, I was a contributing writer for an aviation industry magazine a long time ago. 
And so the things I would write about are basically unpack certain technical concepts, some things that are kind of um, not obscure, but they, they would be to people outside of the business, but some things that are often even misunderstood by people inside the industry um, and, and write about those things. And it taught me to be concise. Uh, the editors I worked with were really good at that. And um, yeah, I used that as a springboard in a, in a writing fiction. E everything I did up to the time I started my first novel, everything I wrote, including company emails, I would approach it from a storytelling point of view. And I wanted to get as you know good at leading people to the point I wanted them or the point where I wanted them to be right. as concisely as possible. And I'm still working on it, but that was a big help. So did you ever uh, think about teaching or? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I, um, I, I did some instruction in my previous job. It wasn't my primary job. Um, but no, I'm in no way qualified to teach this stuff. I mean, one the the notes at the end of a skateboard, I even put a warning, you know, um, what follows is a physics lesson from an English major. So <laughs> proceed at your own risk. Right. So uh, Escape Orbit has Tracy spending a lot of time and effort to maintain a social media profile so she can keep her position. Uh, was this based on watching the current generation discover ways to make money and influence culture online or something else? No, no, not at all. It it was, um, again, kind of an extrapolation. Um, and, and this was mainly an illustration of what, say, a social credit system might look like. Uh, in the near future you know so she works for nasa and she's expected as having a high profile job you know in a high profile government agency to maintain a certain social media presence but it has to be in an approved acceptable way right you know the central scrutinizer is is watching everything that she does and um no, no. And I mean, she hates it. She doesn't want anything to do with it, but she has to do it to keep her job. Um, and, and where this where this all came from, um, there was uh, so there were some events in Frozen Orbit that led to some conflict. And this is what sprung my antagonist, uh, Jacqueline Cheever, into the administrator's job. But um, again, playing out trends. So so a point of conflict I wrote in, in Frozen Orbit was that we experienced a currency crash because of all the debt that we're piling up. And I'm hoping that we're not seeing what I predicted play out, you know, in real time. Having said that, um, the uh, after effects of that are what is playing out in escape orbit. And that's basically that our currency kind of got relegated to the same status as, um, you know, the Lear and the, the one and, or one, I, I don't want to insult people by trying to pronounce it, but right. um, it, anyway, it uh, diminishes our, our status. And in order basically to take a bailout from the rest of the world, so we didn't drag the whole world's economy down with us, we had to accept uh, like a social credit scoring type system. So people's economic activity, the, especially in government agency, the raises they get are based on their social credit score. The interest rates you pay are based on your social credit score. 
So, um, you know, if, if your score is low enough, your phone will automatically warn people around you that they're wandering close to an unapproved person. And, and these are all things Tracy has to deal with. Right. And so, so do you find that social media is a net positive or a negative thing for our society? Oh, I, th- I think it's negative. Um, yep. You know, there's certain things about it that are positive. Like I, I love being able to keep up with people I haven't seen in years on Facebook. You know, my family and a lot of my old friends are all out of state. And, you know, uh, people I was in the military and in college with, I love being able to keep up with them. But, um, you know, it also, it, it not only takes our attention, it fragments our attention spans. You know, I think collectively our attention span as a culture is much lower than it used to be. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're already, we're seeing ways in which it can be manipulated to move people in one direction or another. And you, you really have to, to be mindful of that and, and not let yourself be herded. <laughs> so on a personal note, I hope you're already hard at work on a third book in the series. Uh, any chance of a date such a book might land on shelves or? Uh, I don't have, I don't have an idea of a date. Uh, it's only recently that I realized I've got um, a pretty good foundation for the next book. Um, I mentioned the one I'm working on right now is a real departure from what I've written before. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And um, I first floated the idea by, by Tony Weisskopf almost two years ago now. She really liked it. Um pitched it to her last fall once I, I had the story solidly enough in my head. And when we discussed it, she said, you know, this isn't one book, this is two books. So, and that's always something you want to hear. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm busy working on the first one in that. And then Bain approached me about uh, a short story for the website um, to uh, uh, lead into Escape Orbit. And I thought, oh yeah, that's easy because I, so this book led me down a lot of rabbit holes, um, 20 or 30,000 words worth of rabbit holes. And, you know, so that's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of scenes that, that ended up just not making sense for the book, you know, so pull them all out, kept them in a, what I, I call a holding pen. I make one for every book I write. Right. And, I call it the uh, cutting room floor. Oh, that's even better. That's nice and graphic. Yeah. Um, the killing floor uh yeah, there you go <laughs> so so i thought yeah you know I, I had all this material that i cut out of the out of escape orbit i'm sure there's a good short story uh, to be built out of some of that so i pull it all together i start organizing them by all these different scenes by characters or story arc or you know setting and I, once i got them organized and i read through i realized oh, this is like the opening chapters for the next book. So couldn't use it for a short story. Uh, that would have, that would have been given away too much. And uh, so I had to write a completely separate one. It's from Daisy's point of view. I really enjoyed that, but yeah, I've got the first six to eight chapters of the sequel already done. And uh, I uh, told Tony at, fantasy last weekend that yeah i'll be pitching this one to you as soon as i get done with the the one i'm in right now cool but yeah i I would hope to have that one out say well if i write it you know it's about a year from submission to 
publication. So we're looking at 2024, late 2024, early 2025. I wish I could get it out there faster. And I promise I will if I can, but, you know, can't do it for the publication. All right. So uh, what aside from its raw entertainment value do you hope readers would carry with them long after having read Escape Orbit? Um, there were a lot of things that I explored in these books. Um, and a lot of them are things that arguments that have been playing out in my own head for years now. And um, and I, yeah, I admittedly use a couple of my characters to do that, to take opposing sides of, of the argument. And, uh, and it's funny, you know, because I've had one reviewer accuse me of being a secular atheist, which, which I'm not, but, um, you know, that must mean I wrote the character pretty convincingly. But, um, you know, we are not our characters. They, they all have bits and pieces of us, but if you're doing it right, they they're their own people um one of the things that that i wanted to explore was not just where we came from you know where we created or did we evolve through random chaotic processes but is there other intelligent life out there and if there is why haven't we found it and if we haven't found it is that possible because we might just be the first you know you can't rule that out and there are some things I think argue very heavily for that, that we're the first. And if we are, then we really need to think hard about that and uh, consider how we conduct ourselves, you know, as a society. Um, because if we, if we are the first, then that, that's an enormous opportunity. It's intimidating. And it's also an enormous responsibility. So, um, you know, we might be the sole, the sole light of intelligence in the universe. And if, you know, and even if we're not, we ought to act like it. So, um, so I guess, yeah, those would be the, the things I want people to think about the most. Uh, they're certainly the things I think about the most. And I don't write with a message in mind. These are just things that, again, are, you know, conflicts that I try to work out for myself and, and I right. guess writing this a way of doing that I right. guess the other stuff would be I mentioned the social credit systems in in the uh, prevalence of social media so you know the loss of privacy um, and then also you know responsible use of artificial intelligence right AI is here we're probably not ready for it, but it's here and it's not going away. So we need to tread very carefully. So last con- last question for you. What conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at? And uh, what other work do you have in the pipeline for us to read? Okay. So um, I I was just at Fantasy in Raleigh last weekend. Uh, I'll be at Marcon here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, as a guest, I'm really excited for that. Uh, Dave Weber is going to be guest of honor. Uh, Joel Presby is going to be there. Dan Cobalt's is going to be there. We're actually going to have um, an author hosted version of the Bain Road Show. And uh, so we're really excited about that. And then I'll be at Liberty Con in June. Um, I've also got signing events coming up at, at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Cincinnati on April the 8th. And then uh, the book loft here in Columbus on April the 14th. 
the rest of my dates are to be determined. Right. And as as far as what else I'm working on, I mentioned the uh, the book I'm working on right now is more fun, um, far out kind of sci-fi. Uh, because it's me, it's also somewhat grounded in current reality, and that is uh, the main character is uh, a current day um, human female paramedic and she gets drawn up into this unknown world of of an galactic civilization with lots of different species and um it i'm having a lot of fun writing it as i mentioned the world building is uh, pretty intense i have to really think that stuff through in a way i haven't before and when people ask me about it, the best way I can describe it is think of something like men in black, but with medics and, you know, what their jobs might look like, but it's going to take her farther and farther away from home. And at first, this is, this isn't a problem. She's having fun with it. She was kind of burned out in her job here on earth. Um, but as she gets farther away and it, and it's again, because it's me, it's got to have real science. Relativity is still a thing even in an advanced alien civilization. So she not only gets farther away in terms of distance, but in terms of time. So right. every, every jaunt she has to make on a run takes her farther from home. Um, and um, anyway, she gets, she's going to eventually get to the point where she wants to get back home, but she doesn't know how she's going to do it. So <laughs> and that's where the, the arc of both of these books are going to be going. Sounds exciting. Well, this has been Patrick Childs and Griffin Barber talking about Escape Orbit. I hope you've enjoyed your uh, visit with us today, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for coming. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. They all sat quietly in the softly lit living room as Johnny explained both the bad news and his proposed response to the crisis. And as he gazed at each member of his family in turn, He was struck as never before by the contrasting personalities their expressions revealed. Justin and Joshua, huddled together on the couch, showed roughly equal parts of fear and unquestioning trust, a mixture that was painfully reminiscent of his sister Gwen's childhood hero worship. By contrast, Corwin's face belied his thirteen years as he clearly struggled to find an adult perspective into which he could submerge his own feelings of dread. Very like Jamie who'd always seemed older than his own biological age. And Chris, Chris was as she always was, 
radiating a quiet strength and support toward him even while her eyes ached with the fear and pain a permanent separation would bring her. An acceptance of his plan, based not on submission of any kind, but on the simple fact that her mind worked the same as his did, and she could see just as clearly that it was something that had to be tried. He finished his explanation, and for a few moments the silence was broken only by the soft hum of the air conditioning. When will you be leaving, Dad? Corwin asked at last. If I go, it'll be today, Johnny answered. They'll want to leave as soon as the ship's refueled and all. Are you going to take Almo or someone with you? Johnny smiled briefly. Almo Pyre had been one of the first volunteers through Darl's Cobra factory, and with his fierce loyalty toward Johnny and the entire Moro family, he'd been a natural role model for Corwin to latch onto. I don't think we'll have any problems on the way back, he told his son. Besides which, your father's not that helpless yet. Stealing himself, he turned to Chris. Her loyalty toward him deserved at least as much back. I've explained all of what I know and think, and why I feel I should go, he told her. But if, after hearing it, you think I should stay, I'll do so. She smiled sadly. If you don't understand me better than that by now. The abrupt ring from the phone made them all jump. Getting carefully to his feet, Johnny went to his desk and flipped the instrument on. Yes? It was Stigur. Sorry, Johnny, but no go. Ray steadfastly refuses to clutter his ship with useless colonial officials. His words. Johnny exhaled slowly. Did you explain how important it could be? Loudly enough to scare Agantua. He simply refuses to consider anything even marginally outside his orders. Then maybe I'd better talk to him again myself. Do I still have your authorization to go? I guess so. But it's all academic now. Perhaps. I'll get back to you. He disconnected and started to punch for the starfield. But halfway through the motion he paused and turned to look at Chris. Her eyes gazed at his, and through them to whatever pain she saw in the future. But though her lips seemed made of wood, her voice was firm enough. Yes, try. He held her eyes another second, then turned back to the phone. A few moments later, Ray's face appeared. Yes? Oh, it's you. Look, Governor, Mr. Ray, I'm not going to repeat Governor General Stigur's arguments, Johnny interrupted him. I don't care whether you can't see past your own nose and understand why this is important. The fact of the matter is that I'm coming with you to Asgard, and you can like it or not. Ray snorted. Oh, really? They call that a titan complex back in Dome, Moro. The belief that you can go ahead and defy authority any time you want to. I suggest you check on my status here and consider what would happen if you tried to barge past my marines against my orders. Johnny shook his head. I'm afraid it is you, sir, who's misunderstanding the legal situation here. Our charter clearly states that the Governor-General may requisition a berth on any outgoing ship for purposes of consultation with Dominion officials. The Charter makes no provisions for exceptions. I claim an exception anyway. If you don't like it, you can file a grievance with a central committee when the war's over. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. If you want to claim a legitimate exception, you'll have to present your case here to Aventine's Council of Syndics. Ray's eyes narrowed. What does that entail? Which meant the other had been on Asgard so long he'd forgotten how planet-level politics worked. For an instant, Johnny was tempted to spin a genuine horror story, but quickly decided against it. 
playing it straight was safer, and the truth was bad enough. We'll first need to assemble all the syndics. That's the easy part. They're all on the way here already. Then you'll present your credentials and your case, and Governor General Stigur will present his. The Council will discuss the situation and probably recess to make individual studies of the Charter and try to find precedence in whatever Dominion records we have on file. Then they'll reassemble for a full debate, and when that's finished, they'll vote. If the law seems to allow both sides of the case, a simple majority will suffice. But if the Charter regulation I mentioned seems unopposed, then you'll need a three-quarters vote to grant you a one-time exception. The whole process will take, oh, maybe three to five days minimum. From the look on Ray's face, the other had already added up the times. Suppose I refuse to cooperate with this little delaying tactic. You're free not to cooperate, but your ship doesn't lift until all this is resolved. How are you going to stop me? Reaching to the phone, Johnny tapped some keys, and a second later a new voice joined the circuit. Pyre here. Almo, this is Johnny Morrow. How's security set up going? All locked down, Governor, the younger Cobra told him. Good. Please inform the night manager that there's no longer any rush to service the Dominion ship. It won't be leaving for a few more days. Yes, sir. Hold it, soldier, Ray snapped. I am a direct representative of the Central Committee, and on that authority I'm countermanding that order. Understand? There was a short pause. Governor, is his claim legitimate? Yes, but this specific action seems to violate a clear charter provision. It looks like it'll be going to the Council. Understood, sir. Servicing operations will be suspended immediately. What? Ray barked. Just a damned out, sir. A click signaled Pyre's departure, leaving the rest of Ray's outburst to expend itself in thin air. He broke off, fixing Johnny with a furious glare. You're not going to get away with this, Moro. You can throw your cobras against my armored marines all day without— Are you suggesting a firefight in the vicinity of your ship, sir? Johnny asked mildly. Ray fell suddenly silent. You won't get away with it, he repeated mechanically. The law is on my side, Johnny said. Frankly, Mr. Ray, I don't see why this is really a problem. You obviously have the room to spare for me, and I've already showed you that you'll be both morally and legally in the clear if your superiors become annoyed. And who knows, maybe they'll actually be glad I came along, in which case you'll get all the credit for such foresight. Ray snorted at that, but Johnny could see in his face that he'd already opted for the simpler, safer course. All right, what the hell. You want to cut out and spend the war on Asgard? That's none of my business. Just be here when the rest of the passengers show, or I'll leave without you. Understood, and thank you. Ray snorted again, and the screen went blank. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Patrick Childs, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Akshaira coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.